This episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Dice, where fans could experience more of the shows they love. Buying concert tickets can be exhausting. It's easy to miss your favorite artists when they're in town, and fans have to watch for hidden fees and resellers who drive up ticket prices, all while hoping one of their friends can attend. You deserve better as a fan. On Dice, you can find quality live shows tailored to you. DICE will tell you what's happening in your area and offer a personalized selection of shows. Artists love to partner with DICE because they provide complete and fair experience with fans through their waiting list technology that locks tickets to smartphones. Plus, DICE's robust analytics helps artists better understand their audience. Venues and promoters love DICE because their data-driven tools, customer service, and direct connection to fans across the world make it the place to buy and sell tickets. Want to learn more? Check out Dice at Dice.fm. That's D-I-C-E dot F-M. Fast forward to today. 2023, ridiculousness is on MTV 20 hours a day. How did we get here? Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. You're about to listen to a deep dive on one of the most influential companies in music in our lifetime, and that's MTV. Think about MTV's journey over the past 40 years. It says a lot about where music has gone, where the industry has gone, and so many of the rises and falls that we've seen. In this episode, we talk about the early days of MTV and how they truly created a category around music videos. They weren't even called music videos in that same way before MTV, but we saw the evolution and we saw some of those challenges MTV had in the early years until some pivotal moments that helped create the trajectory and the impact that then led to the epic run that the channel had in the 80s and 90s. We also talk about some of the controversies as well and some of the big pivots they made, especially the pivot away from showing music videos and towards showing reality TV and other programs. We talk about the economic implications of those decisions as well, and we talk about some of the iconic programming that MTV had, like the VMAs, TRL, the Movie Awards, Jersey Shore, Road Rules, Real World, and so many more. I'm joined by Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, friend of the pod, and we took a trip down memory lane with our own memories of MTV. Zach has some funny stories about him attending MTV itself and what its evolution in culture and some of the missed opportunities, but also we break down where MTV is today. This is a channel that shows ridiculousness on repeat a majority of the time. So we talk about MTV's role as a cable company in or cable channel rather, in 2023, what some of its opportunities are, some of the missed opportunities along the way, and who are the people that won and lost the most over the journey of MTV. So let's dive in to a deep dive on music television. All right, today we are back to talk about one of the most influential companies in the history of the music industry, a company that changed its trajectory and says a lot about where music has gone over the past 40 years. That's MTV. And here to break it down with friend of the pod, Zach Greenberg. And Zach, I got to ask you, do you remember the first time that you watched MTV? You know, it was funny. Uh, I was never really an MTV kid growing up. So, you know, I think it just kind of had to do with um, with my parents and sort of, you know, <laughs> the the, uh, the TV, the TV watching diet. But um, but I just remember like 
going to other kids' houses and they'd be like, oh yeah, you want to watch TRL or something? And just having my mind blown by like this whole other dimension of music that was showing up that just kind of didn't otherwise make it into, into my life. And it really was, it was like seeing music in the third dimension. And, uh, you know, so, so it to totally makes sense that MTV had this incredible impact on, on our generation. And so, I don't know, how about you? Yeah, I think <clears throat> mine, mine was mid nineties, maybe, LL Cool J's Do It It was being played at the time. And at that age, I was still watching your Nickelodeon, Fox Kids, maybe some Disney Channel stuff, but I really wasn't tuned into that. And that was just kind of like, whoa, what is this? And then that then goes down this gradual thing. You know, if I had it out with my parents are watching, they probably would have felt some type of way about it. But it probably wasn't until a few years later when it really became more of a regular viewing for me but wow what a journey and we're gonna get into all of that but i think the best place to start with this is even before mtv gets started so let's go back to the beginning late 70s and music videos really weren't even called music videos at the time that was a term that came i believe the term that was often used was promotional clips and there was this vision by this guy john lack he was an executive he was an executive at Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company, which is a mouthful. And they had Nickelodeon, they had the movie channel, but he saw this overlooked opportunity with teens. He felt like there was shows and programming out there for kids. There was shows and programming out there for adults, but there really wasn't as much for teens. So that then starts a few things where he's experimenting on a few different shows. And then that brings him to pop clips, which ironically was on Nickelodeon of all places to then give them a preview of what's there. People get a sense for it. And apparently the ratings take off. And at that point, that's when they said, okay, we have something here. We need to build this up a little bit further. Yeah. And, and I think ultimately MTV uh, was a joint venture between, was it Warner and American Express? I think that that's how it started out, uh, which is kind of wild when you think about that, like American Express getting into what MTV turned out to be, you know, even then, and then, you know, what it is now, which are two very different things. But, um, you know, yeah, I think just the idea of the music video, you know, back in the day, it was sort of just a throwaway thing, um, you know, dating back to the seventies and, and nobody really put much thought into it. Um, and in a funny way, I mean, we can talk about this more as we get into the rise and the fall, but I, I would argue that, you know, music videos today have, have drifted back toward what they were back then. Uh, you know, now that, now that it has been de-emphasized a little bit. Um, but, but when you think about the greatest videos, you know, like what are the, what are the videos that stick in your, in your mind? I mean, you know, certainly for me, like all of the great videos are, are they came out of, they came out of the eighties or nineties or, or the early aughts, maybe this kind of golden age of music videos brought on by the rise of MTV. Right. Because if you look back at some of those videos, sure, you had videos like Bohemian Rhapsody, which did stand out. That, of course, is a video that came in the 70s. But for a lot of what stood out, it's like talking heads that are floating in this black, black, black drop, right? It's not the craziest thing in the world. But a lot of it was just these grayscale videos of bands performing in front of a TV and the experience of someone watching a musical performance on TV was seen as the live thing, right? 
Are you going to get on American Bandstand? Were you going to be on Soul Train? Were you going to be on Phil Donahue or one of these other shows? So the thought of having a standalone pre-recorded clip that you then put out and share just wasn't something that people necessarily were thinking deeply about. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, it was a proxy for touring. Like you would put out these promotional clips, um, you know, to try to make it in, in markets where you didn't necessarily have an audience, or maybe you would use them to sort of um, butter up uh, like a, like a regional audience, you know, before you announce tour dates there so that, you know, you'd, you'd increase the ticket sales. Um, and I think also in those days, I mean, a lot of people forget, but like you go on tour to promote an album, right? Now, now you put out an album to promote a tour, right? Cause you know, back in the day you'd make the money on the records. Now you make the money on the road, unless you're Drake, in which case you make money on the road and from the streaming. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's important to think about, you know, the, the role between touring, putting out albums and then the music video and, and how they fit together very different than, than it is today. Agreed. And I think the other thing too, just with this time of um, MTV coming up is that you also have the rise of cable too. You're starting to see more options beyond what's just happening from a broadcast perspective. You're seeing more unique channels, which obviously paved the way for Nickelodeon, for the movie channel, for some of the things under that Warner Amex umbrella. So once they decide, once they decide to get this going, Black then hires Bob Pittman, who was a former radio guy himself. And that was a common theme that we saw with MTV. And they're thinking of names. They're thinking of Rockbox. They're thinking of TV One. And MTV, music television, did seem pretty basic, but they eventually were able to make it work. And they had this whole concept where they're like, okay, what is the thing that we want to do to make a statement? What is the access to information that we can get? Or what is the type of statement we can get? So they said, okay, we can get footage of the moon landing. Literally one of the most iconic visual moments that you've ever seen on video from the 21st century. They have that, plant the MTV flag, and then they're off to the races. And I want to, before we get there, I do want to talk a little bit about the business model because I think that was the interesting thing because their whole pitch was we're going to get the record labels to give us the videos for free. And we want them to give us the videos for free because we view ourselves as radio. We view ourselves as visual radio in the same way that they give the radio stations that for free, they wanted them to do the same. And the response was somewhat ironic, but it probably wasn't too surprising just seeing how things were. The record labels told them to kick rocks, but eventually that changed over time. When you look at it sort of in the, in the context of the fullness of time, right? <clears throat> it's not different, too different from the social media model. Uh, let's, let's create, let's get celebrities to give us free content that will make people watch our thing and then we can sell ads against it. Uh, so it's a brilliant business model. Um, and, and in fact, you know, I would argue uh, a precursor to, you know, Facebook or Instagram or, or TikTok or whatever, right? You're, you're having suddenly a generation of kids being able to see their musical heroes up close. Uh, the, the creators are putting this stuff out for free, right? And giving it to the, the network, the platform. Uh, and, and then they're selling ads against it. So, um, brilliant, brilliant business model. Of course, the, the labels were, you know, not so keen on it early. Um, but, you know, it, it went from a phase of, 
MTV begging labels to send over videos uh, to labels begging MTV to air the videos. And, uh, you know, I think what happened in, in, in between is, is kind of like the most interesting part. Like, how did it, you know, how, how did it kind of reach that point? Right. Because the early start wasn't, it, it was a big splash at first, right? Because you have the Buggles, Video Killed the Radio Star, perfect song to kick things off. But there were only, depending on who you ask, some say they only had 100, some say they had 250 music videos, but that was all they had at the time. So there was a lot of repeat. There were a lot of artists who leaned in, then they may not have wanted it. Like I heard that Rob's, that, that a Rod Stewart just had a bunch that they just, that he just wanted to submit. And then similarly, a lot of the British artists leaned in and those um, artists, even before the American artists did. So there was a lot of Duran Duran, the police. They called it, you know, the, the British invasion was one of the terms that they used there. But the thing is, those couple of years were a little bit tough for MTV because they, I think a few things happened. That first year, at least from what I read, this was from the I Want My MTV book. Bob Pittman had said that they only sold $500,000 worth of ads in that first year. And they just had a hard time getting advertisers bought in to some of the videos themselves. Things were racy and the network definitely had its challenges, but I think there were two things that we can dig into. One was the I Want My MTV campaign, and then the second was Michael Jackson's Thriller. Would you agree that those are probably the two main things that changed things? Yeah, absolutely. Although I would say uh, Billie Jean paved the way for Thriller, and the story of that is one of my favorite stories in the history of music. So, you know, if you look at the money behind the business, right, it wasn't doing so well in terms of selling ads in those early days. However, uh, right, the, the MTV goes on air August of 1981, um, 300 cable outlets, audience of 2.5 million homes. But within a year, it's up to 2,000 affiliates, more than 17 million households, households, not people, right? So maybe you're going, if, you, if you're assuming two or three people per household, uh, you're going from you know six, six or seven million to you know, suddenly like 50, 60 million in the space of a year. So obviously the, the capacity to uh, sell ads, you know, even if you're not selling it for, for you know, th that much on a per ad basis, if you're, you're, your audience is so huge. Um, the ad inventory just sort of like a massive, you know, ma massive amounts of space to, to place ads, you know, eyeballs to get on those ads. So you kind of had this machine that was just ready to ready to start you know, churning out money and all you needed was to, to sort of generate more interest. Right. Um, and I think that I want my MTV campaign was just a brilliant way of doing that. You know, I want my MTV. And you had all these different artists coming in and just saying that phrase and singing that phrase in their own, in their own sort of uh, different ways. I mean, I, I, do you remember any specific artists that you, uh, that you heard, in that campaign back in the day? Yeah, so one of them, Mick Jagger, he was one of the big gets that they were able yeah. to get. So he was able to push it. And then there were a few artists too that said, hey, I know that this is seen as a promotional thing, but the more that I push this, the more it ends up benefiting me as well, right? So they understood that. They saw the landscape. And it, it, it made perfect sense because you then have the fans calling their local cable providers to then be like, hey, not only do I want cable to come through to my area, but I also want you to make sure that you're adding MTV because that was a whole thing growing up too that I think depending on your age, maybe 
um, easy to forget where depending on where you live, you may not got you may not have gotten certain channels on your cable stream. And it wasn't until the late nineties that you had like digital cable and all these expansions. But I remember even chan places like um, or channels like the Disney Channel didn't come in like certain areas, and in the '80s, MTV was one of those. But this was one of those campaigns that helped make it ubiquitous. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think just you know ha having hordes of teenagers kind of demanding with their parents, like, "Oh, can we get the you know MTV package?" Right. That resulted in a lot of uh, cable providers having to provide it. And of course, that's another great thing for the business model. I mean, if you have cable companies paying you, um, you know, whatever it is, like a buck. A subscriber or something for, for MTV, um, you know, that's just like, that's basically free money. Once, you know, you, you're operating, whatever your, your, your operating costs or whatever they are. And then you get it, you're getting these subscription fees on top of it to, you just get to expand it at such a rapid rate and you're getting all this free content. Um, it's, it's an amazing business model. So yeah, I, I think that the ad campaign was huge, but you know, you still had this issue of, MTV being pretty segregated, right? They weren't playing hip hop. Um, you know, maybe they were playing like a little bit of Lionel Richie, but it was almost exclusively white rock artists. And, uh, and so, you know, along comes Michael Jackson with Billie Jean and, you know, Michael Jackson was always really interested in film. He never liked to call his, uh, music videos, music videos, there were short films. And, you know, so, so like this, Billie Jean video was, was kind of a total masterpiece and he really wanted to make sure that it got on MTV. So I wrote about this in my book, um, Michael Jackson, Inc. Walter Yetnikoff was the head of, of CBS records at the time, which had Michael Jackson, um, for the thriller album. Uh, and he just come over, I guess he, the Jacksons had been on, on CBS and then he put it off the wall, off the wall as his solo album. Um, I think it was Epic and then it was CBS anyway. Uh, so, Walter Yatnikoff was this like caricature of a, of an eighties record executive and, you know, just like cocaine all over the place and, you know, just constantly drinking and, um, you know, philandering and, you know, what have you, uh, messing around. So, but, but he, you know, to his credit, um, he really wanted to defend Michael Jackson, you know, I think out of self-interest, right. He, he wanted to, he wanted Thriller to be huge. He knew how great it was. And, you know, he also wanted to, to help break the color barrier in, in music videos. So he was kind of like, kind of like the branch Ricky, you know, of, uh, of the music video era and in Michael Jackson's Jackie Robinson. So, um, Walter Yetnikoff calls up bid pit, Bob Pittman. And this is from, from, from my book. I interviewed, I interviewed Walter Yetnikoff before he unfortunately passed away. He calls up Bob Pittman. He says, are you the chief schmuck? <laughs> Bob Pittman goes, yeah. <laughs> Yetnikoff says, I want you to play Billie Jean. It's not up to you. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to pull every CBS records video. What are your artists going to do? They're not going to have to worry about MTV. If I pull everything, Quincy Jones, who's very close to Steve Ross, who owns the other half of MTV, is surely going to pull out. And then, and then you can have Warner and CBS pulling your stuff, blah, blah, blah. So eventually MTV caves, they put on Billie Jean and it becomes this just like massive video that paves the way for Thriller to become, you know, arguably the, the most influential music video of all time. And, and really like, you know, Michael Jackson becoming the biggest star in the world. I think so much of it had to do with uh, having that video aspect, right? Because it wasn't just that he was a great singer or songwriter or, you know, had a great producer um, in Quincy Jones, but like 
obviously he could, he could dance like nobody else, but you know, if you don't have the visual element, if you don't have music videos, um, you know, that's kind of lost in the shuffle because you can't really, it's not like everybody's going to be able to go out and see him on tour. Um, and even if, you know, you, you made it to a tour in the eighties, you know, if you were a kid going on, going to see one of these big acts, you're sitting way up in the, you know, in the upper and the nosebleeds and, you know, you can't really see Michael moonwalking and the jumbotron isn't really kind of what it is these days. So, um, I think that, you know, not only did it make the career of Michael Jackson, but it just, it just added this third dimension, uh, to, to all music that, you know, that, that sort of hadn't been there before. It changed the company altogether. And we've talked about this on past podcasts in terms of category creation. This is where the modern concept of what a music video is and could be really started. Because sure, you started to see some experimentation in the early couple of years with MTV, but everything changed after Thriller. Then that's when, as you mentioned before, I think that's when things really flipped. We started to see more, even more examples of like you shared of the record labels calling on MTV to push and to promote certain videos, which is a theme that I think we saw time and time again continue throughout, you know, all the way up for decades after that. The other person, too, that came shortly after Michael, but as we think about her career, I think it's a little bit unique, is Madonna. Because Michael is someone who I think was already a star off the wall, was already successful. So this just brought him to this otherworldly stratosphere that we just hadn't seen any solo act to go to before. But Madonna is someone that everything about her was tailor-made to succeed on MTV. Coming out with statements, everything about her is visual, how people connected with her, her 1984 VMAs performance, singing like a virgin, and every other time that she's done where she's reinvented herself, she had different identities. I don't think that is as possible when you're purely existing on radio and from an audio perspective, but the visuals really made it possible for her to be who she was. And I think that she was successful. She was very successful, obviously throughout the decades, not necessarily as successful as Michael, but I'd argue that relative to like her Delta, I think that MTV played an even bigger percentage factor in terms of her career and what she was able to achieve than maybe honestly anyone else I could think of from the eighties. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a, a fantastic point. And, you know, um, she, you know, she definitely had a unique aesthetic and, you know, with sort of like all the, all the accessories and, 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 you know, different things, different looks that she had going on. Um, I think it's worth noting here that, you know, another consequence of the video in the MTV era is that stars started to care a lot more about their appearance. Right. And you had, you know, the, the eighties sort of glam rock type of thing going on. You know, everybody, everybody was wearing just tons of makeup, um, and big hair, you know, dudes, ladies, everybody, uh, you know, just like really eyeliner, the whole thing. And, and there was a, an emphasis on appearance, you know, sort of, sort of like really over the top, um, kind of get ups. But I do think this is a moment where, uh, music became more of a, um, like how you looked suddenly was important in a way that it hadn't been before. So that, you know, um, you know, back in the day, if you were, you know, like, let's say not a tra traditionally attractive person, it didn't really matter as a musician because you weren't really like front and center 
on screen all the time in the MTV era that began, that began to change. And so, you know, um, an artist like Billy Joel, not sort of like the prettiest dude in the world, uh, that was sort of like a different set of considerations. And, you know, I, I always kind of wonder if that's part of the reason why Billy Joel essentially retired in 1993. Like he, he put out his last album, River Dreams, you know, he, he was arguably biggest art, one of the biggest artists of the eighties and, and early nineties. And all of a sudden just kind of stopped and he keeps touring and all that, but you know, he, he just, he was never really like a, he was certainly never a glam rock guy. And, you know, I, I don't think he was sort of into the whole um, aesthetic, you know, and, and not that he, I'm not sure that he could have pulled it off and he wasn't into it anyway. So, you know, you kind of wonder um, what sort of an effect that visual uh, emphasis had on, on, you know, on certain artists who weren't traditionally attractive. I do also think that, um, you know, on the flip side, it increased uh, the objectification of women um, in, in music videos, things like that, tropes of girls in cages and, you know, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, that that became kind of like uh, an icky consequence of the of the video age. And, you know, I think there's sort of like a superficial element um, that, began, that began to take over. And, you know, maybe there were artists who came on who were sort of good looking and you could produce the video in such a way and produce the music in such a way that it sounded good, but like they were never actually going to succeed on tour because they couldn't really replicate that in a live setting. And so you had maybe a, a few more one hit wonders or like acts that didn't really have legs, you know, in, in the long term as a well-rounded um, live, you know, live music sensation as well. I do think one hit wonders did uptick after this as well because it was easier to achieve the look and the vibe but not necessarily have the longevity behind you because you clearly need the package to be able to have those repeat sales so that's a good point there so i'm, I'm a big nerd obviously and uh you know I, I did acapella in college and we recorded a couple of albums and uh i, I was the business manager i believe the year that we recorded an album and but there were there were just some things that you could record in the studio that you would never perform live because the, you know, hitting the high note or something like that was just, it was like 50, 50 at best that you were going to hit it. But if you had studio time and you could sort of like auto tune or, you know, do multiple takes, then, you know, why not? So there, I just remember there being songs on our albums that we never performed live because, um, it, you know, it was just so, too difficult to pull off. And I think that's in a way a microcosm, of, of the, the, you know, of the, the music video age, obviously there's some of that just with recording, but, but certainly with, you know, videos, you, you can have a certain level of production. Um, not only, you know, I guess not only audio, but video that, that you could never really pull off in a concert. And, you know, and certainly with, in these days, uh, you know, in the modern day concert business sets have gotten just really over the top and ridiculous and, and, um, and, you know, just visually incredibly stimulating, uh, but I think in those days it was harder to capture that live. And so there's a lot more kind of imagination that you could apply to the visuals when it was in a one-off video type of scenario. Yeah, definitely. I feel like you start to see artists do more of this stuff now, which is now leading to this ongoing debate. We keep hearing about whether artists should be singing over their tracks in concerts or people getting mad when artists lip sing, but it's to yeah. that point. I mean, you can take that 50, 50 risk when you're doing a music video or if you're doing a solo thing, but it's a little dicier when you're actually in front of thousands of people. The other thing that happened right around this time is on the business side for MTV, they end up 
getting acquired and they end up doing a deal. So they end up doing a deal with Viacom. And this is the same structure that they largely are under today. But in 1984, in that post-thriller era, MTV started having a pretty sizable and strong business, uh, $109.5 million in revenue, uh, almost $12 million in profit. Warner Amex had owned 66% of the business, and they were reaching 26 million households. And a lot of that was more so just the continued growth and development of cable. The acquisition also included VH1 and Nickelodeon. And then not even too long after that, they were entertaining offers to go back to private again for nearly uh for for nearly 500 million dollars so the 80s was such a growth uptick period and you started to see that on the recorded side of the business as well because the reason that the record labels were pushing and trying to get their videos played is because you were able to see the impact of you have your artist music video that's put out that gets regular airtime on MTV. And then you see those records getting sold at Tower Records, at Strawberries, or wherever people are buying their albums from. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's just the, the machine. We talked about the machine, right? Everything was in place and they just needed to have uh, content to put into the machine and, and get people to be engaging with the content. And, you know, once that happened, it was, I mean, it really was a money-making machine. You have free content coming in. Uh, the cable providers are paying MTV to being, you know, to be in their offering uh, selection of, you know, cable. And, uh, you know, I mean, so the only cost really to MTV at that point were just staffing. Um, and, you know, they, they weren't, I mean, I guess this is before they had really begun to get into producing their own things, which kind of happened. I mean, I guess that was kind of starting to happen around this time um, and then became more and more a part of what MTV was doing as it kind of moved away from music videos. But, you know, th that, that was the best business model, right? Free content, have people pay you uh, to run free content all day long. Right. It was, it was working really well. And the thing that they started to realize, which I do think sets the tone for where this conversation will go eventually, is MTV's decision to eventually move away from videos. But one of the things that I think they noticed is that if there's a video that fans like, they're more likely to stay on that channel. But if there's a video that they don't like, they're more likely to move off of that channel. And as cable expanded, as other things expanded, they did start to see more of that pull to okay, how do we keep these viewers locked in and not just have them change the channel if there's something different that they see? So oftentimes you'll hear people refer to the golden years of MTV being this 1981 to 1992 era. Ironically, 1992 is when the real world starts. That was the first true reality program that they have. But I do want to highlight a few things that happened before that. You alluded to this earlier, but you started to see more and more complaints from artists and the industry as well, who felt like music videos were turning people into one trick ponies and record labels, forcing artists to make music videos and artists complaining that now I have to care so much more about this appearance and you want me to do this thing. And now this is being heavily weighed into, am I going to get signed? Am I going to get this? Am I going to get that? And it is ironically similar to the same stuff you hear today about TikTok and how artists feel about the record label trying to get them to do more clips and the artists complaining about that and people saying that TikTok is 
turning the industry into this, that, and the third, these conversations come up time and time again. And that's one thing that stuck out as I was reading through things. I was like, huh, when they say TikTok is the new MTV, they're not just talking about in terms of where culture sits, but they're also literally talking about the intra-industry dynamics. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and I think, again, this might be something we get into a little bit more later in the conversation, but I almost think that uh, where MTV went wrong was, and I guess the timing just didn't quite work out, but um, MTV was ideally positioned to create its own social network, right? I mean, because it essentially was a social network without the social aspect. And as soon as, you know, that became possible with the rise of the internet and the mainstream, MTV could have owned that, right? Uh, I mean, even when you think about MySpace, that was a music-oriented site. It was a music-oriented platform. Uh, if MTV had been able to kind of own that space, um, you know, there's no reason it couldn't couldn't have kind of continued to be as relevant as, as it always had been. Because what do, what do people do on TikTok? They, they just kind of you know, tune in and, and look at videos and they do it on their phone. But in MTV, it was like that, except you sit in front of a TV. If you could have just transferred that idea, you know, you had the branding that people were used to kind of sitting in front of it and, and seeing, you know, their favorite uh, stars. I think, I think it would have been um, like a pretty uh, obvious move, but the timing didn't quite line up. They were already in the early nineties, moving more toward producing their own stuff the content business is, is never a good business. It's much better to own the platform, but everybody wants to have a good platform. They want to start producing their own stuff and then they pay all this money and then they become much less profitable. So that's, uh, I guess that's kind of what happened to, to Let's talk more about this one soon. I feel like I have a whole, we have a whole category on like where MTV is now, what could have, should have been, but yeah, let's, let's talk about that one in a minute. I do want to talk about some of the programming before we get into the reality piece of it. I want to talk about Yo MTV Raps because this is an important show. You mentioned earlier about the racism, lack of black artists being shown on MTV. Some of the responses you heard, there's that iconic David Bowie interview where he literally calls out the people to say, hey, why aren't you playing more music for black artists? That, of course, was before we saw uh, Billie Jean and Thriller, but still hip hop just wasn't necessarily getting its shine even after Thriller and the success there. It's like they kept moving the goalpost, but then things change after UMTV raps. Yeah. You know, UMTV raps, I think, I think that might be the most important show in history of MTV. Um, you know, it may not be the best known, but just in terms of culturally what it meant in, in terms of bringing hip hop to the mainstream and bringing hip hop to be a part of, uh, MTV more broadly, you can't underestimate that. So they bring in Bad Five Freddy, uh, one of the pioneers of hip hop, you know, who in the early days really connected what was going on in the South Bronx um, with the downtown scene. So, you know, he, he would go and take like Debbie Harry and, you know, like new wave rockers up to the Bronx and, you know, show them what was going on with DJing and uh, graffiti and breakdancing and all this stuff. And, and so that's why, you know, the, the first, rap to, to end up number one um, on a chart was um, Debbie Harry, right? I mean, with Rapture and she shouts out, you know, Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly, you know, all that stuff. I mean, that's a result of Fab Five Freddy kind of bringing hip hop 
um, in, into the into the mainstream music scene, bring it downtown. And so he was kind of the ideal emissary to bring hip hop to, you know, like tens of millions of household uh, across the country. And, you know, I, I think that he, he just, he had this sort of like perfect combination of, you know, I mean, he, he had a like very engaging interviewing style, um, but, you know, also just an authenticity to the genre, like as, as a pioneer of hip hop himself, as a graffiti artist, you know, he was known for, he, he would go and uh, tag the four train or the five train. Sorry. Uh, that's a train that runs from, you know, like up from Yankee stadium down to grand central. And uh, he would go and tag it with these like Andy Warhol style Campbell soup cans. And, you know, so you imagine like these people getting on the subway in midtown and all of a sudden they see pop art coming down <laughs> on, on the subway. And I think that's when people sort of started to get the idea that this wasn't just like a bunch of vandals, right? It, it was these young guys and, and gals with, um, with like, really kind of impressive artistic sensibilities who were, who were having a conversation with the sort of avant-garde pop art of Andy Warhol and, and all that stuff. So Fab Five Freddy comes in to, to MTV with the MTV raps and, and uh, you know, it's a mix of like playing music videos by hip hop artists, but also him interviewing them. And so he's going out and talking to Snoop and Dre. And, um, and, when I was writing my book, Three Kings, I interviewed him about it. And, and he mentioned like, there was this time when I think NWA was promoting his second album. And Dr. Dre said, he's like, we we're, we're, we want to become billionaires. We're out, we're out to take down Donald Trump, <laughs> which, which sort of uh, is kind of fascinating, right? Obviously Dre almost became a billionaire with the sale of beats and, you know, hip hop uh, has, has sort of taken aim at Donald Trump in a, in a different way. You know, I think in those days he was the sort of aspirational wealth mascot and, you know, now he's a, a punching bag. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I love kind of looking back at those moments and, and seeing how kind of oddly prophetic they were, but UMTV raps was sort of, uh, was, a, was a home for a lot of that. And it elevated a lot of this too, because there were folks like Ralph McDaniels doing his thing with video music box, but I don't think that a show like that necessarily got the budget or got the level of exposure that MTV, that UMTV raps did. And you see those iconic clips of like them with Wu-Tang Clan, them with other groups that were iconic. He was touched in with the culture in that way. It's interesting because that show, I maybe it was mid nineties when it ended, it was like somewhere around there. So, but that I think kind of highlights a bit of this shift that we started to see with MTV because you would have them just show music videos. Then you had programming that was still directed around showing you music videos, but then you really started to see things shift into other types of content. So I do want to talk about a few of the shows that we have here. Um, I do want to talk about the VMAs, but I want to talk about movies first. And I want to talk about that first because even though MTV wasn't historically a music channel, they did get into movies. And I think they also influenced movies maybe even before they got into movies because later in the 80s, you started to see the Brat Pack and all of those movies where now people see the success that you're able to have with MTV and having music television as the thing that connects this group of people. And now people see that and say, okay, well, let's have movies. And that's where you see all these uh, Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, and uh, Demi Moore movies like Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, Pretty in Pink, all of that. 
And then you extend to the next decade where you have, you know, your scream and I know you did last summer and singles, uh, reality bites, all of these shows, cruel intentions that also in some ways, some of their scenes feel like music videos in a lot of ways where you, you clearly saw that influence there. And then MTV eventually has its own award show. So movie awards start i think it's 92 was when they had the first show and they have all of these awards that clearly line up with the mtv demographic like best kiss and stuff like that and you start to see a lot of people play into that so they were wise about the multimedia expansions and i think a lot of that was how influential it was just from a cultural perspective and then the business just making complete sense to go into yeah and i think the other thing was mtv was very smart about uh, maintaining the sort of edgy ethos to it. And I remember another Fab Five Freddy story. He, he told me that back in the day, I think it was 1988 or 89. And, um, the, the Grammys had sort of snubbed hip hop, you know, per, per usual. And so the, so YoMTV Raps hosted a Grammy boycott party. And I think, Will Smith came in and, you know, like Slick Rick and Ice-T and he, and, uh, and this is in the late eighties in, in, in LA and, and Fab told me, uh, all of a sudden this old guy rolls up on a motorcycle and, and it's Malcolm Forbes, the, you know, the, the owner and publisher of Forbes magazine at the time. And, and Fab's like, yo, Malcolm Forbes, you, you know about hip hop. And he's like, I've got the chapter and the verse. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it, it, um, I, I think it, it kind of like emphasized, first of all, how far hip hop had come in terms of, you know, being something that MTV actively ignored in this, you know, very racist sort of way to being a driving force, like pulling MTV forward, uh, and getting the attention of people like Malcolm Forbes w within just five years, right? Um, but but not only that, it was a really savvy look for them, especially, you know, with the rise of the VMAs as this other, you know, kind of like big time award ceremony, uh, you know, to, to be the, like edgier than the Grammys, to be like the people's version of the Grammys or something, which were increasingly sort of fuddy-duddy and, um, you know, old white dudes, you know, kind of like celebrating each other. And, and overlooking what was what else was happening in the culture. So, um, yeah, I think stuff like that really, uh, you know, paved the way for the VMAs to, to, to have a cultural imprint. And with that, I think we should probably just dig into the VMAs a bit more. So this is, of course, the oldest awards show that they have. I believe this year should be the 40th year of the VMAs, if I'm not mistaken, because if it starts in 1984, this is 2023. I assume that this would be year 40. But with that... It's interesting to think about this because this show clearly rose in popularity, as you mentioned earlier, starts off with a bang with Madonna in the wedding dress um, with Like a Virgin. And every year it did become this opportunity for people to level up, always consider itself to be a bit, you know, off center pushing the boundaries. And that's something that we continue to see. Do you remember the first time that you like sat down and watched a VMAs like in the appointment television setting of like, okay, this is what I'm doing tonight. We're watching the VMAs. You know, I, I can't say that I do. It just, it was sort of like, 
oxygen. It was just there and you don't remember the first time that you uh, yeah. consumed it. Um, but uh, I, I do think another, you know, like there are a lot of epic moments in the VMAs. Uh, we could talk about, you know, Kanye and Taylor Swift in 2009. But um, I think one pretty funny thing was in, in one of the earlier VMAs, uh, Michael Jackson was kind of getting sick of being called Jacko or the gloved one. And so he what was it. He, uh, he, he was invited to appear at the VMAs and he said he wouldn't show up unless all of, unless MTV said that all of their VJs would start referring to him as the King of pop exclusively. And this is a, a name that Elizabeth Taylor allegedly had come up with for him, but maybe he came up with it himself. I don't know. Anyway, they went along with it. And, and so the VJ started calling him the King of pop. And then now he's the King of pop. So uh, I, I just, you know, there, there are always these little concessions that get thrown in uh, at, at awards shows like this, you know, whatever ceremonial award is being given, it's like, you know, what, what was the behind the scenes horse trading that went on to make it happen? Uh, and there were a lot of pretty creative ones. Right. The we, we even still see this today where last year, I'm pretty sure this was last year, Taylor Swift comes to the VMAs. And at this point, Taylor Swift doesn't need to come to the VMAs, but you can clearly read between the lines yeah. where they say, okay, we're going to award you video of the year. I forget the video that she had won for, but we're going to award you video of the year. And she uses that as her opportunity to be on stage and announce that she's going to drop Midnight's. So it was the perfect moment for her, but she's not going to show up at that award show and not know and leave it up to chance if she's going to win or not. And it's interesting. Like that's the kind of stuff that can happen at the VMAs that I don't think really happens at the Oscars or things like that. Maybe, maybe at some other award shows, but yeah, so that's something that um, uh, I've, I've kept in mind there. But one of the things that I think about as well, I mean, from a ratings perspective, this show clearly peaked. 2010 2011 whenever like gaga either showed up in the meat dress or the egg that's when the ratings were the highest i, I want to say they were getting over 10 million um viewers for it and for a cable show broadcast that's pretty high especially in that era maybe a college football bowl game and like a few other things were getting that many ratings um for for a cable broadcast but it was doing pretty well then from that perspective and yeah they were able to capture the zeitgeist i think back to shows like 1999 um that vmas i feel like that was really when you caught trl at its like ultimate peak and stuff and i remember as a viewer there this is why the first time that i picked up the difference between as you mentioned earlier how the vmas may vote on things versus how the grammys may vote on things and um it was like a it was a big year for like Backstreet Boys, Limp Bizkit, Britney, and Sync, and all those kinds of bands. But when it came to the Grammys, it was um, Santana and Rob Thomas that smooth song and Santana um, Supernatural album and that album just taking over and sweeping the Grammys and stuff. And that's when you realize that oh yeah, the Grammys that's more about the Clive Davis group and that whole machinery and the. VMAs is more about the Carson Daly group and that whole machinery. And that was probably the youngest that I realized. I was like, okay, these are two very different things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think, you know, interestingly, like VMAs have been kinder to hip hop over the years than the Grammys have, which isn't really saying much, but, 
I think that's also a divided line. When you think about, you know, where MTV was even in the late 80s with the MTV raps and the Grammy boycott party and all that stuff, um, you know, versus like the Grammys still having this big problem acknowledging hip hop that has only kind of started to get better in the, the past couple of years. Right. Agreed. And you've been to the VMAs, right? Yeah, I've been to both. I've been to the Grammys a lot. I've only been to the VMAs once, but uh, I was writing a story about Normani. And so she was performing. And so I, I went out. Um, I was sort of backstage and with, with her with her team and, and her publicist was like, we can go. Do you want to go sit in Normani's seats? We can go sit in Normani's seats because she's not going to be using them because she's performing. And I was like, all right, sure. So, you know, we're, we're, you know, we sit down and like DJ Khaled comes in and sits in front of me, you know, Taylor Swift like walks down the aisle is sitting a few, a few rows away and uh, Gigi and Bella Hadid are like over in the corner, you know, it's like, everybody's kind of sitting down. I'm like, okay, this is pretty interesting. And, um, and then the, the lights go down. Lizzo comes on and performs. Um, and, uh, and I'd like, a, you know, and the, it basically, whatever's next happens. There's still this empty seat next to me. I'm wondering who's going to sit down. And all of a sudden, you know, in comes Lizzo and she's in this like enormous pink tutu and, and she sits, just sits down and seat next to me. I'm like, Oh, Hey, I'm Zach uh, from Forbes. I was working at Forbes at the time. And she's like, Oh, Hey, I, I, you know, I don't have anywhere near enough money to make it onto your list. And we kind of had a laugh about that. And, but you know, she's like, she's like sitting down in this enormous tutu and it's sort of like flowing in like over my entire body and, and like, I'm just like immersed by her tutu. And so Lizzo, this is when she had just gotten onto the scene and, uh, you know, was sort of like at the, at the very center of, of the zeitgeist. And, you know, she was up for a bunch of awards as they kept cutting to her on, on TV. And, um, and I just remember like when I got home, my wife was like, uh, was Lizzo sitting in your lap at the, <laughs> at the VIs? Because her tutu was sort of, I like, I looked like I was just, my, my head was, was kind of like poking over her shoulder like a parrot or something, but it, it looked like she, she had just totally like enveloped me. And, um, and this was, uh, it, this was like a very odd experience. So, so um, anyway, that, that's my VMA story, but uh, no, I don't know. Have you, have you ever been to the VMAs with Grammys? I have not, but if we weren't recording a podcast, I'd pause and be like, Hey, I'm going to get back to you right now. I'm going to go watch this video to go see exactly what <laughs> this happened. So maybe I'll do that after. <laughs> there, there are, there were like a bunch of friends were doing sort of like screen grabs and circling my face, you know, and, and tagging me on, on Instagram. Uh, so it's, it's probably somewhere, you know, I'm Zogblog on Instagram. It's probably somewhere way back in, in there, but uh, I really do like from certain angles, it's just sort of like my disembodied head, um, floating on her shoulder. I mean, it really looks like you copied and pasted me, but, um, uh, but, but there I was. Do you have more fun attending the VMAs or the Grammys? Oh, the VMAs were way more fun because I, I didn't have to, uh, to cover them at the time. It was sort of just like context for an eventual story. So, you know, it was mostly just getting color for, for that piece on Normani and talking to her backstage. And then I could really sort of, sit out in the crowd and enjoy the show. Uh, you know, they're great performances and, and, and you get to really take them in. Um, so, you know, at the Grammys though, if you go to, if you're going to cover the Grammys, you get seated in the, in the back in the press room in this sort of like, like sweaty windowless corner of the Staples center 
or whatever it's called now. And you watch everything on closed circuit TV and, and you bang out stories and, and, um, but it's, it's not very glamorous if that's sort of what, what you're into. The one cool thing about covering the Grammys, I would say, is uh, they bring the artists backstage um, and you do sort of like a mini press conference. And so it's an easy way to interview people who you might not otherwise be able to interview um, and, and sort of just like do a whole bunch of interviews at once. Um, but yeah, those were always like very long days. And, uh, you know, the press corps, we were always too tired to, to go to any parties after. So it was just like grab an In-N-Out burger and, and, you know, go home, crank out your last story and, and, uh, and go to bed and get up, you know, for, to crank out the next one. So, uh, yeah, I think that the VMAs were, were uh, a little more fun. Yeah. It's- Although the Grammy week in LA is always a blast Agreed. And, and there's a lot of interesting stuff to do. So agree. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely the pre-event that is more interesting. And I feel like it's interesting now because I feel like from a youth perspective, at least when I was in like middle school, high school era, there was much more water cooler talk about the VMAs than there ever were the Grammys. I mean, maybe the year that Jayla wore the green dress, um, the Grammys got a lot more discussion, but I mean, outside of that, but I think, I think things flip now. I mean, I talked to my, you know, cousins who are teenagers and stuff who love music and there's much more intrigue in Grammys and those things than there ever are VMAs. But um, moving on to some of the other programs, I know we want to hit a few of these. I think it's probably a good time to talk about reality TV overall, because now, at least in this part of the story, we're into the 90s and 1992 is when the real real world starts. And this is where things really start to change for MTV. As I mentioned earlier, they started to see some of that disconnect of if there's a video that someone doesn't want to watch, they may change the channel. But the day they put on that pilot episode for the real world, they said the ratings went up 3x compared to what they were showing else before that. And that first season of The Real World, in a lot of ways, was so iconic. It was a good time capsule for grunge culture and was able to show you things uncut in a way that, whether it's Singles or Reality Bites or 90210 or any of these shows that were captured around that area didn't quite get in that same kind of way. And things took off and you just started to see the programming shift more and more to that. And one of the things that I thought a lot about with how this change gradually started to happen over time is I think in entertainment and content overall, there is a bit of this disconnect between what consumers say they want versus how consumers actually behave. And consumers say they want more music videos. Fans, other people say they want more music videos and want MTV to play more music videos. But when you give them that, they don't watch it as much as they watch the stuff that they might complain about, which is the reality shows and all of the different derivatives of the dating shows and real world world rules challenges and eventually Jersey Shore, which ends up being the biggest show that MTV ever had from that perspective. So the ratings are telling you one thing, but the consumers say this. And it reminds me of this place that Hollywood has been in for the past 20 plus years where people complain about why doesn't Hollywood make more original content? Remember when we were growing up, you had Armageddon and you know all of these other blockbusters that were original IP in the 90s and stuff. But when they take risks to make stuff like that, people don't show up. You know what people show up for? They show up for Spider-Man No Way Home. They show up for the IP that's there in a way that if you remove the IP and kept the story, then you would lose a large percentage of the audience. And 
MTV did follow the economics, whether or not people felt like they should or shouldn't have followed the economics, I think is up for debate on what they feel like the purpose of MTV is. But from a business perspective of giving fans what they want, it reminded me a lot of this debate that we're seeing in Hollywood. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way of putting it. And you could argue that it's the same in journalism too, right? Um, everybody says, ah, oh, I hate clickbait and, you know, let's have more intelligent, I hate hot takes, you know, but, uh, but that's what people click on. I mean, that's, it's not just clickbait because people know that that's what it is, but they still click on it. You know, people still, uh, click on hot takes. And so, uh, I think the news business has moved more toward, you know, lists. I mean, certainly, uh, I've been there at putting out lists of the top earning rappers or whatever it is. I mean, I would much rather do an in-depth profile of, you know, ludicrous than like tell you how much money he's making, but, but you want to know how much money he's making more than you want an in-depth profile of ludicrous. So, uh, I mean, not, not you, Dan, I think you, you know, I think you would want the in-depth profile. We're fellow nerds here. Um, That's why we're doing you know, this maybe, podcast. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but you know, yeah, people want that, that like quick hit that like people want the, the information just like, you know, like injected into their veins. People want to know who are the 10 most, whatever, you know? So I think that's the same thing with, um, with reality TV and it's like, yeah, consumers can say they want one thing, but their actions lead in another way. And, uh, you know, and especially in businesses that have been, um, really, you know, under pressure from, the shift to, you know, to web-based everything like media, like television, uh, you know, you kind of have to follow, you have to follow the money or you're going to go out of business. Right. And so MTV came under tremendous pressure as time went on because, you know, TRL, you could, what's the point of TRL when you have YouTube? Uh, and so, you know, what's the point of, um, VJs when you have influencers anyway, I mean, like VJs were kind of the first influencers you could argue, uh, in some ways, just famous for being famous and, you know, a, a lot of the same things that we see on social media influencers, right? So that whole narrative that we've been talking about all episode about MTV being sort of like a pro proto social media and like social media without the social, you know, well, like the interactive social part, right? I mean, th there was a social aspect, like sort of a water cooler, um, you know, what's going on in the zeitgeist thing, but obviously you didn't have sort of like individual profiles. You couldn't interact with, with people in the same way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, reality TV was sort of like the only place for them to go. Um, because you, you're not going to be doing the thing that, that you came there for at, at first. And again, right. It's like MTV is trying to find a way to produce something cheaply that a lot of people are, are going to want to engage with. And, uh, and, you know, reality, put, creating reality TV shows is a little more expensive than having record labels give you videos for free. But, um, you know, it's certainly not as expensive as, uh, you know, developing scripted series and, and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, as it happened, they were really good at it. And, you know, even sort of quasi reality stuff like, you know, Jackass, I don't know if you'd call that reality or not, but, you know, that, that's obviously not very expensive to produce. Um, I think, you know, in, in a way, uh, MTV kind of led us down this path. Um, it, but it wasn't really a great path. It wasn't a great path for MTV, but what else is MTV going to do? Um, you know, as, as sort of like the traditional model evaporated. Right. And I think they leaned into like other areas that were tangential to this that 
prove their cultural influence too. I remember growing up seeing MTV Spring Break well younger than I ever could have when I ever even go on spring break. And I think even things like that, even though we weren't watching MTV in college, it's still influenced. Oh yeah, let's go to Cancun. Why? Because you still think about MTV 1997, them going to Cancun or wherever they had went to, like things like that just stayed ingrained with you. And then MTV also dabbled into animated stuff, whether it was Beavis and Butthead and Daria. That's another thing where I think those shows, I don't think they cost that much to make, but they were able to capture a zeitgeist and they were willing to create things that attracted teens. And if it weren't for those shows, and then we then see Adult Swim and all of these other channels that came after with all of these you know, more adult-leaning cartoons. Granted, I know you had The Simpsons, but I think that's still didn't quite hit that like teenage angsty level that I think like Beavis and Butthead or Daria did. And then you also had MTV leaning into politics and things like that, whether it was rock the vote or Diddy really leaning into voter die and things like that. They helped with the Super Bowl programming. Obviously I know this is rock nations lane now, but several you know decades ago, it used to be MTV. You remember that one that had the mashup up, Nelly and Aerosmith and Mary J. Blige and NSYNC. That was an MTV production. So they had their hands in all of these types of things. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that sort of would have been another pivot for them if, if they could have stuck the landing on that a little bit better. Uh, to, yeah. To become MTV presents, you know, MTV's producing this or that. Um, if there was a way that they could have made that more of a, uh, you know, almost like, I don't know, MTV presents the Thanksgiving Day Parade or something, you know, like it, a way of bringing uh, youth to, to think like, well, I guess the Thanksgiving Day Parade is more about like really little kids, but MTV presents the Thanksgiving Day Parade like, oh, my God, we're going to have, you know, run DMC and Aerosmith performing on a on a float, you know, like uh, underneath Snoopy or something. Um, just sort of like creative ways. To, to leverage their brand, um, you know, r rather than just going all, all fully, fully down this reality TV path. Um, I think another, another thing that, you know, maybe a, a better analog or maybe a better comparison that they should have been able to do is to, if they could have become something like vice was in vice's heyday, you know, there, there was definitely a path to do that. Um, I guess vice, you know, vice's heyday is kind of over and there are some problems with vice too, but, um, there, there is a certain uh, like youth energy that it, it could have, um, you know, I think brought into the next era, but, you know, part of it was that I think they trashed their brand, right? A lot of these, uh, you know, reality shows and, and clip shows just really, it was very lowbrow. It wasn't cool anymore. And, you know, you, you couldn't have that kind of edgy vibe of a brand like Vice and, and, you know, that, that in turn made doing things like MTV presents the whatever, uh, you know, less, less compelling, less valuable. Yeah. I feel like the last moment they had that before it really became just reality and then gearing up for awards shows was that late nineties, early two thousands, like TRL era. Were you a big TRL watcher? Yeah. Um, you know, again, it was more of like a thing that I would watch at, at other kids' houses uh, and, and yeah, and there was just this sort of element of like, whoa, you, you can, you can, you know, it's just this other dimension to music. Right. But I think the TRL thing, the TRL era also overlapped with file sharing. And I was, um, uh, let's say 
<laughs> it, it was something that, that I was interested in uh, early on. And um, <laughs> I, I guess we all were, right? But we all did. That, that was a, a lot space more. Space. You could have a, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, the, the, TRL is one thing, but, you know, if you really wanted to listen to like, whatever weird music I was listening to at the time, or I remember, you know, back in the day in the, in the late nineties when, you know, starting to get into fellowship, I was like really into like French Celtic rap and, and, you know, uh, stuff like that. I mean, you couldn't find that on, on TRL. So, um, yeah, but, but I don't know. What was the first time you saw TRL? Yeah, I probably started watching either 98 or 99. I think it debuted in 98 eight because it's like backstreet boys in a corn were like po- i feel like they were some of the popular videos around then i think and then by the end of 1998 you had britney's debut and i think that was a huge moment and then in the same way that we were talking about madonna as being probably the biggest artist who i'm not sure where their career would have been without mtv i think britney may have been that for the 2000s where trl really became her vehicle i think the boy bands and you know, that whole bubblegum pop era was as well. But I think especially her, just given the heights that she was able to reach. And then a couple of years later, we saw we saw it with Eminem too, because he's someone that if there wasn't MTV and you're just relying on program directors at radio stations to go promote this person's music and you're hoping that Dr. Dre's cosign is enough for that would Eminem have broken out the same way that he was able to? Well, I mean, you kind of saw this in the mid-90s when I think he had that Invincible album and things just didn't quite break through. And I wouldn't say that you know, he wasn't like not like talented as an MC then. So I do think that when I think about the 90s and 2000s, those are two people that I think really lead into and truly benefited from it. And I mean, I know there's others as well, like your Kid Rocks, Limp Biscuits, and Corns, you know, like the new metal wave and stuff. But just considering the yeah, Eminem really became the biggest selling artist of the 2000s. He had songs talking about, you know, if I was white, I wouldn't have as many followers. And I go on TRL, look how many hugs I get. Like he was aware of the game, but I think those two probably benefited most from the TRL machine. Yeah, I think, I think that's a great point. And, and, um, you know, as, as far as who benefited the most from MTV over the, it's grand history, I'd probably still go back to MJ, but, um, but really, you know, I think that there was a direct benefit for him. Uh, I think other artists benefited indirectly and it became such a, just sort of like an assumption that it was part of the music scene that you were going to put out videos that, that people didn't even directly trace it to MTV anymore. But when you think of any artist who, you know, who does a lot of videos who sort of like video focused, I mean, um, you know, Kanye did a lot of it. I mean, you know, Kanye was, was, um, pretty epic when it came to his video output uh you know so you, you you could really put any any big video artist as a primary beneficiary of uh of mtv i think yeah i would say so especially when we didn't even we haven't even mentioned hype williams yet but i think everything that he did with music videos the artists that he was working with missy yeah. timble and all of those mtv just enabled this and going back to the movie tie and the movie belly which was pretty much an hour and a half music video is stemming from what you were able to do with that and with music videos as well even though reality tv was taken off music videos were having just this big moment especially in the trl era art it wasn't uncommon for a superstar artist to have a music video with a two million dollar budget 
and they did it because they knew that they were going to make the sale from it. I believe it was like one of those in sync videos. Uh, maybe it's like bye bye bye, or it's going to be me. One of those. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I was well over a million, maybe close to two million, but it ended up being the like I think No Strings Attached ended up being the best selling album for 25 years until Adele released that um, album that wasn't on streaming initially. Third, 25 that one. So they put the money into it, but they knew that it was there. And obviously, you alluded to it earlier with. Napster and the decline of the CD era, but MTV was able to withstand some of this because of the reality TV. People were still tuning in. So there was this lag where obviously MTV's decline was coming, but it didn't decline as quickly as the music industry did because MTV had had the content and the programming that was there that wasn't reliant on music industry sales the same way that the music industry itself was. So it's one of those things where I know that's a common thing that people get frustrated about where companies will leverage music to grow. And then once they become sustainable and the music industry is still trying to find its way, those companies grow go on to do big things. I think that's a common thing we've heard in tech over the past, you know, 15 years or so. But I do think that definitely lined up with some of the MTV criticism as well. Yeah, and I would add sort of the the rise of product placement in music videos um, as another thing that that kind of degraded the product. And you know, as the MTV promotion machine kind of wound down, you know, uh, it, it wasn't so clear that music videos were going to be these these great drivers of sales for albums and album sales were going down. So that was kind of another problem. So. If, you know, but then you still had now this assumption that if you were a big artist, you're going to have a big video, it was sort of a prestige thing. And so in order to, to make the videos work, you had to have these like really egregious product placements um, in the middle of your videos. And then it, you know, kind of began to move a little bit back toward that same, you know, like corny promotional thing that videos had started out as. Um, and, and I think that further kind of like reduced the, the emphasis on music videos, you know, more, more broadly. So the, this kind of vicious cycle began to, to come into effect, I guess, though, to tie it back to hip hop, you know, uh, with beats, I mean, Jimmy Iovine made this edict that every video had to have beats in it, you know, that was coming out on Interscope. Um, so there's your, there's your product placement, but uh, I mean, that was a little bit more tasteful than some of the other stuff, but you know, there what was it, there was like some Lady Gaga video and there was an ad for plenty of fish. I mean, it's just like some blatant, like promotion plenty of fish is a dating site i don't know it, it got it got like pretty corny and i think really contributed to the demise of the music videos and art form so with that we should we should fast forward to today 2023 ridiculousness is on mtv 20 hours a day oh god yeah how did we get here yeah you know i mean if you if you sort of like follow that kind of business model to its logical end, right? I mean, it's race to the bottom. Um, you know, what, what's, what's cheaper than reality TV? Um, yeah. Clip clip shows just like have some dopey clip show and run it over and over and over again. And I think ridiculous, ridiculous. This TV is now, I mean, it's like the vast majority of MTV programming. It's something like, wasn't it like 60% of, of all hours that MTV, you know, is, is on air. It's like, ridiculousness yeah um just you know dudes hitting themselves in the nuts or something and uh <laughs> i guess people watch it um 
you know, I mean, I guess enough people watch it and it's cheap enough to produce that, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're doing okay on it, but like, that's not a long-term plan. And, um, you know, if you want to look at blooper reels, you can always just go online. Right. I mean, it's the same thing as music videos. So, you know, if MTV doesn't find some other path, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the end will, will, will be coming. I mean, I, I kind of don't see any way around that, honestly, like, um, the brand means something, but who knows what it means anymore. And, you know, the core business is gone. And I think it's just sort of like, I don't know, people still have dial up internet, like some people, a couple people, you know, and it's going to go away, you know, the, the last remaining stragglers, right? So it's just like, how long are the last few holdouts going to stay that you could eat out a profit running a business like that? Um, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't be too optimistic. I think we're seeing something that is somewhat similar to what we're also seeing with ESPN to some extent, right? You saw these channels that rose with cable hit their stride in the 90s, 2000s. They were still doing it. And then, sure, cord cutting, that happened and it's still happening. They were able to weather the storm to some extent, but between the cord cutting and just the shifting economics in terms of how people consume the main thing that they were known for, it's now leading us into this thing where you don't hear as many sale or discussions about MTV. I mean, right now it's currently under Viacom with um, a number of other properties, but you're starting to hear this now with ESPN under Disney and what is Bob Iger going to do? Will they sell it to Apple? Apple clearly wants to all of these things. And I think the same way that you saw it with them, the same way that you saw it with Sports Illustrated, with print magazines, um, you know, decades earlier, these iconic brands that mean so much in culture and entertainment that lock themselves to the medium as opposed to being a bit more broad beyond that. I think it's only a handful of companies that have really been able to withstand several different mediums and still be successful outside of the broadcast channels and places like that. But I do think that MTV has suffered a bit of that fate. But even within that, I still feel like there are certain challenges because, of course, ESPN in some ways is very different because just the cost structure is so different where they're trying to get live sports rights and that is a very expensive business and you obviously need a certain amount of revenue, both with carriage fees and with advertisers to justify that. But on MTV, obviously it's a very ridiculously cheap product to make. I mean, the most expensive may be what they're paying Rob Durdeck and we could get into that in a minute, but they have this show which they're essentially showing the type of stuff you see on like house of highlights not not the sports content but like the blooper reel types of stuff you're having these celebrities come through and then give their commentary on it that's cheap to make but then i read some interview where they had interviewed the people that are currently leading mtv now and their thought was like okay well the people that are watching cable now it's an older audience they want a bit more of that comfort food and they're not against showing them the same thing over and over all day long. And that I do agree with because you look at other channels, other shows, even ESPN, as strong as it still is. All right. The day after you're, you're all of the programs are pretty much designed after, okay, what happened yesterday? Let's talk about it. And we have rotating heads, different formats, but that's roughly what it is. And even shows like Bravo or E and some of these other reality networks that they do show the same shows over and over, whether it's you're seeing Real Housewives back to back, you're seeing Below Deck or, you know, Shaws of Sunset, all of these other shows that are quite popular. That then makes me think, though, that I looked at the ratings with it. Bravo, 
which is a relatively newer show compared to MTV, is getting at least twice as many viewers regularly than MTV is. And Bravo primarily relies on reality TV shows, whether it's The Housewives and some of the other ones I mentioned. That should be, from a pure business perspective, that should be what MTV is at least having some foothold in. The fact that they kicked off everything with these reality TV shows with um, Real World and then now other channels are now doubling their viewers essentially because they learned from what MTV did. It's like, I get it. It's hard to have the same cultural music zeitgeist when you're a cable channel, but people are watching cable to catch up with all of that Bravo content. That kind of stuff, when you mix in some of the flavor of love and some of the stuff, the love and hip hop that's been on VH1, like that should be on MTV. Like, because the audience, a lot of the audience, especially a lot of the women that would watch MTV 20 years ago, a lot of them are now watching Bravo and E. And I feel like that could have been, if you're going to say, okay, what could succeed in cable television in 2023 that MTV realistically could have done, I feel like that could have checked that box. Yeah, that's true. But I think when you sort of, you know, um, hitch yourself to a generic wagon. Uh, maybe I'm mixing my metaphors, but you know, reality TV, there, like there's no reason why you would go to MTV over anywhere else for reality TV. Sure. They could be doing more of it and, and more of the music related stuff, but it's, it's not like a medium that, um, you know, that, that any one channel really owns or that, you know, it's like reality TV is reality TV, wherever it is. And it, you know, there, there's nothing that differentiates MTV anymore, uh, you know, when it comes to that. So music television, you want music, you want to watch music videos. The only place you can do it is MTV. Um, and, and they just, I don't think ever really figured out what to do once uh, you could find music videos everywhere on the internet. And I agree with that. I think that that worked so well for them in the early days when they had the brand, it was something unique. They were able to do that. But even today, where I think even if you look at like ESPN being still, despite its challenges, one of the more successful cable networks, or if you want to throw in the politics news channels, like what else could they do now that would make business sense, just given like where the business is today? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I think I think, you know, we could get into the missed opportunity section, what they could have what they could have been doing, but it's too late now. And, you know, I, I just don't see I think I think they missed their chance to start a social network or, you know, have MTV. I mean, I guess like when YouTube was starting to, I don't know, to, to really like come try to compete with YouTube buy YouTube, whatever, you know what I mean? Um, and, and for that to be like, in, you know, in other words, if they could have found a way that you can go to MTV.com and, and watch videos and that would have, if that would have become sort of like the, the milieu through which people watch videos online, you know, then that would have been a, a great business, but, um, but they didn't do it. So, <laughs> and now they're just kind of this race to the bottom. So Google buys YouTube, I think it was 2006 for a billion dollars. Could Viacom have done that? Dollars. It's probably out of MTV's. Yeah. It's probably out of MTV's price range by then, but you know, could they have bought YouTube earlier on? Could they have like, uh, started a competitor to YouTube? Could they have, you know, I mean, you got to think also they had such a head start where like there were takedown notices and there, you know, they're all like, don't forget, right? Like 
it took a while before the music industry could kind of like get on board with YouTube and figure out, you know, what's a fair, you know, I guess people use YouTube to listen to music uh, more than they use it to watch music anyway. Um, but, you know, MTV had these great relationships with the labels. Like, don't you think they could have found a bet, you know, like they could have preempted YouTube in, in many ways. Um, I don't know. I just, I think that would have been a logical path and, but they just, you know, never really did it. I mean, if Netflix could pivot from physical, uh, you know, DVDs being sent to your house to streaming, right? Like, um, why couldn't MTV pivot, you know, more toward, uh, doing something online. But I think it was probably one of those situations where they're like, oh, we don't want to cannibalize. You know, if we put it on online, it was going to watch the TV channel, blah, blah, blah. And, and then they just, you know, watch the opportunity, uh, go, go to others. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, there's, there's still a path for, for nostalgia, right? I mean, there's a big market for nostalgia, right? We're doing an MTV episode right now. Uh, and so, I guess like the brand of MTV is, is still valuable, you know, to certain generation nostalgia stuff. But, um, I don't know, man, it's, it's like a very, it's, it's a, it's a rough, it's a rough moment. Netflix's pivot, I think is a good example. Granted, I do think that they probably had the flexibility because they were a independent company. I know they tried to get bought by Blockbuster. Blockbuster wasn't interested, but they were an independent company. And the fact that, MTV was under Viacom. They were already within the cable network complex where this is the business we're in and we're going to run this cash cow as long as we can. And that's just kind of what the higher ups do. And that's kind of the same thing that we've seen and we've talked about in some of the record label conversations we've had, right? What makes a cash money different from a Def Jam? And you think about some of the decisions that a company like Def Jam has where it's like great brand, but the minute that you're wholly owned or majority owned by the broader powers that be, you do become engulfed in that. And it's kind of harder to make those distinct differences. And I feel like that's what we're seeing here a bit now with MTV. I just go back to, you know, if you, if you see a reality show, there's, there's no way, like you're not, you don't really care what, what network it comes on. You don't go to a certain network expecting, you know, the best reality. Sh- I don't know. You know, you, it, you tune in because you want to watch the show, not because of something, uh, you know, more, more related to the network. I think in journalism, you see that too, right? If there are very few brands where you go to that publication's website just to see what's going on. I mean, the New York Times uh, for me would probably be it. Or, you know, if you're a music person, maybe you go to Billboard or Rolling Stone or something. But, um, you know, most of like... I think most publications are fighting for viewers uh, with that, with that clickbait. What can you, you know, what is it? What's the splashy headline? What's going to, you know, get to the top of the Google results. And um, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, what the front door looks like, you know, you're fighting for, for people to come in, um, you know, through other areas, but it's a much better business if you can have everybody come in the front door and MTV just doesn't have that anymore. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, so we we talked through some of the um, missed opportunities there. Did you have any others or? Um, yeah, an MTV branded social network. Uh, you know, an MTV YouTube. Um, I mean, an MTV TikTok, right? Like these are all, uh, you know, companies that came up like while MTV was around and had a little bit of money. I mean, you know, I don't know, like partnerships with with some. You know, even if you couldn't 
clone the thing or buy the thing, you could have a, I don't know, is there an MTV TikTok partnership that would have uh, sort of like elevated MTV? I just, um, you know, could you have had done some sort of like almost syndication deal with influencers where you, you know, you have, uh, you bring some of their stuff to MTV. I mean, maybe there is something like that. I don't know. I haven't really, uh, I just, you know, it's, it's so off the radar um, these days. There were there were ways to stay stay on the radar, and, and I think there there's just so many missed opportunities. I'm not sure I could uh, I could pinpoint a single one. Yeah, I agree with all of those. Um, and then I think similarly, do you have a dark horse move? Um, well, I guess it probably is similar because the dark horse is more so something that they did that is under discussed, but something that MTV did that uh, doesn't get talked about enough today. You know, I don't know that it's a, a dark horse move, but I mean, I do think Jersey Shore, as much as I've been shitting on reality TV here. Uh, you know, I, I kind of hate reality TV, but I really was pretty addicted to Jersey Shore because to me, if you, if you are watching reality TV, like you want it to be like the least amount of thinking uh, involved, right? Like if you want to be entertained in that way, you don't want to have to think at all. And, and Jersey Shore is just the perfect guilty pleasure and, and, um, I mean, it really was, a you know, I remember when it first came on, it was probably like 2009, something like that. So it was way after the, the MTV heyday, but that show was huge. And it, and it made like pretty enormous stars out of Snooki and, uh, you know, DJ Polly D and some others, but you know, like a, like a, so I don't know if it's a dark horse, but how about this? My dark horse, how about DJ Polly D? Um, the music network puts out a reality show and this guy becomes a DJ, right? I mean, I remember DJ Polly D uh, one year when I was doing my list of top earning DJs for Forbes. I mean, he, he made something like 10 million bucks. And, you know, a lot of it was from Jersey Shore, but a lot of it was also from him going out and getting paid like 50 grand a show in Vegas or wherever, you know, and I think he was all right. But like 50 grand a show, that's like what Questlove was getting at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it, so in a funny way, MTV did create, you know, a, a music star um, even way after its heyday of creating, you know, or, or creating, but, you know, elevating music stars. Uh, you know, there was DJ Pauly D kind of doing his thing. And um, I mean, I think out of all of them, he has sort of the most sustainable career because, he, you know, I, I don't know that any of them could go out and get that much money just for an appearance. And, um, and he's he certainly been able to do that pretty nicely. Jersey Shore was brilliant. I, there, there's no other way to yeah. say it. That I, yeah. I mean, even though it was technically after MTV's heyday, it was the highest rated show that they've ever had, and it really wasn't even that close. Yeah. It's 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 pretty impressive. And yeah, those numbers are wild. That's like Calvin Harris at Wet Republic numbers. Maybe not anymore, but like when he first started, that's that's insane. Um, yeah. My oh yeah, I think he, now he's getting you know like seven figures, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. My dark horse move is how they positioned everything with VJs and making that its own thing. Because I think now you see with companies like whether it's Barstool or whether it's The Ringer, other places that really put effort into making its media personalities become either personalities or stars that the people want to follow in their own right whether it's independent or in conjunction with the actual programming, 
that was a really good thing on them because I think that even you take shows like a TRL, like people remember what it was like with Carson Daly or someone like an Ananda Lewis or Dave Holmes who had been there for years. Them doing that, I think, was an earlier version of what we're now seeing where people talk about, oh, you need to make your writers and your journalists be personalities. I'm sure that you know you probably had or there's probably discussions about this like at Forbes and places like that as well, like that you've worked. But yeah, that was one of the things where I said, okay, they're not just having these people be, you know, voices to say whatever they are, but you do get to see a little bit more personality, some uniqueness as well. And that's something that stuck out in the early days. And yeah, as you mentioned, Polly D, um, even though he wasn't a traditional VJ, someone having the platform from MTV being able to go in, do their own thing. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised, too, that there weren't more uh, musicians, you know, you know, sort of like washed up musicians who didn't have anything better to do, but who were still big names kind of coming back and being VJs. And maybe they thought it was beneath them or something. But I, I think that would have been a, an interesting um, way of integrating, you know, music into MTV a little, a little more directly. But, you know, probably they would have wanted way more money than whatever anonymous VJ came and then that they made a star. I think it's, you know... And I guess we saw this with ESPN a little bit too. It's like, you know, if if you're the right kind of place, you can hire somebody for pretty cheap and then make them into a star. And then eventually they become too expensive for you and they go do their, their own thing. And then you can just kind of like keep creating stars. And, and that's probably a better business model than, you know, luring some some name to uh, to attach to, you know, to your shows. It's a good point because we saw at ESPN how expensive this guy, right? Like part of the thing is like, okay, why would you fire Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson from NBA and ESPN? Well, they got, they got expensive is essentially the water cooler discussion. And I think you saw this on other networks to some extent, like Bow Wow was on, was a host on 106 in park. And he also was someone who benefited from having his music videos on 106 in Park several years earlier. But you didn't see as much of this on MTV. I'm sure someone listening could probably um, share a few things that I'm probably missing off the top of the head. But yeah, you didn't quite see as much there. And I think it would have made perfect sense. And yeah, you may not, they probably would have required a lot of money, but I'm sure that there's just so many levels of stardom, especially all the one hit wonders that MTV had birthed in places like that. Like having those people come in, yeah. they could, they would have been more affordable and they clearly yeah. saw the impact of the platform. So I guess before we wrap things up, um, who do you think won the most from, yeah, let's start with the first question. Who do you think won the most from MTV? Uh, you know, I was going to say Michael Jackson and I think that's a fair way of putting it. However, um, I'm going I'm to go with a hot take. All right, here we go. I'm going to say Taylor Swift. I'm going to say that Taylor Swift, from that moment at the VMAs, and I actually did a, a thing on this for Forbes. I mean, if you chart her, her annual earnings from that moment in 2009 through today, I mean, it's just like uh, a rocket ship taking off. Would Taylor Swift um, have become Taylor Swift even if she hadn't been interrupted by Kanye uh, at the VMAs? I'm sure she would have. But that moment uh, of, of Taylor and Kanye at the VMAs, I mean, you know, and we can we can do a whole episode on that, right? Uh, on on what it means and sort of like, obviously Kanye kind of shouldn't have done it, but the backlash was like really disproportionate and and I think deeply racist and whatever. We can get into that, but the fact is that Taylor Swift emerged from this as like, you know, suddenly one of the 
the, the there's like such a wave of goodwill for Taylor Swift. Like poor Taylor Swift, this terrible thing happened to her, and and I think made her um, so appealing in the mainstream and made her like such a like a superstar. Not that she wasn't a star already, but like a mainstream superstar in a way that she wasn't at the time. I mean, Kanye West was a much bigger star than Taylor Swift was at the time. Uh, and I think that it, it elevated her on the national, international stage um, in, in, in just a way that was very positive for her, even though the episode was like not fun for her. I'm sure it just, just a wave of sympathy and, and like positive feelings that, um, that really helped, I think, hasten her rise to superstardom. So I'm going to go with Taylor Swift. How about that? It's a hot take. And I agree with you that I think she still would have been a star <laughs> without it. But I do want to highlight the broader thesis of what you said, which is I think sometimes people underestimate the impact that scandal, drama, gossip can play on an artist, even a superstar's career. You brought up Taylor. I'll also mention Beyonce because the fanfare and the fandom from a Beyonce from when the elevator incident happened with her and Jay-Z in 2014 leading up until her dropping Lemonade. That album was a huge hit, but people would be lying to themselves if they didn't at least say part of listening to that album is, okay, what is she going to say about all this shit that has been happening and that people have been talking about rumors for the past two years? Because from 2000, from, you know, 03 Bonnie and Clyde up until the elevator incident, this was like, oh, you never hear anything about this couple. Like, you know, they're off doing their own thing. They get married secretly and stuff like that. And I mentioned that because I think even with the most talented superstars, these are two of the biggest stars that we've ever seen in music, whether it's that incident with Taylor, any of the continued Kanye drama with Kim Kardashian and the famous song or, you know, songs about ex-boyfriends and things like that. All of those things play into what makes people intrigued. And sometimes that may get casual fans to become real fans. And I think even more so with Taylor recently, whether it's, you know, the Scooter Braun, Breaking Ticketmaster, anything that provides these opportunities to have your fans rally around you helps give you that boost. It's not the only thing. There's plenty of other factors, but I'm glad you mentioned it because I think that those things in general play a bigger factor than I think even the you know diehards in the industry like to give it credit for. Yeah, no, yeah. And it, I, I do think her first moment like that was 2019. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, maybe we'll do an episode just on that. <laughs> <laughs> so mine is another hot take of who I think benefited most from MTV, and that's Rob Durdeck. This man has <laughs> okay. yeah. dominated this network for almost two decades now. So just hear me out for a second. Robin Big starts in 2006. They have their run. They do their thing. And then after that, you have Rob Deerdeck's Fantasy Factory. But around this time, he starts to be a producer and a co-creator of these shows. So he's now getting equity stakes in these shows and, you know, points on everything. And he also has a stake in Ridiculousness too, the show that is responsible for 60% of MTV itself. And he has spun it up into having, you know, these different ventures where he's selling this and that. And the same way that a content creator, like whether you take like a Logan Paul or something like that, has been doing their things directly off of YouTube and hoping for the brand placements and all of that money. 
Rob's been doing this on MTV, so he's getting the MTV money, and he's also still doing his own product placements through all of these shows because he wrote it into his contract that way. So despite the decline that MTV has largely had in the Rob Durdeck era, this man has cleaned up that cash cow and is still continuing to do so. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up on a Forbes list at some point. I think that's a great one because I, I don't see him you know, uh, being as successful as he was otherwise. It's not like Taylor Swift where I think it was going to happen anyway. So that's, I think that's a great take. Yeah. Um, all right. Who do you think lost the most? If that is a, I know that's a bit of a weird uh, frame, but yeah. Do you think anyone lost yeah. the most on TV? Well, you know, keeping with my Kanye and Taylor thing, I'm going to go with Kanye. How about that? Um, uh, and it's, it's, you know, on the one hand, um, Kanye did go on to be a billionaire after that. So it kind of pokes a hole in my argument, but then he also became not a billionaire. Uh, I really do think that that whole episode um, and sort of just like the magnitude of the backlash, uh, I think it totally changed him. Uh, and I think that it, it, it made him like paranoid and uh, you know, and sort of like the fundamentally, um, you know, I don't know, negative in his outlook at the world and like what might happen, which I think I could kind of understand. Um, and, you know, I also think that, uh, I mean, he was basically exiled for like a couple of years. Um, he did come back from that to create my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, which I think is the best album of this millennium personally. Uh, so, you know, that's great. Uh, I'm not really doing a good job of selling my argument that he was the biggest loser, but no, I mean, I, I think that, it, it, it fundamentally altered his his world outlook in in a way that that um, contributed to his downfall. And obviously, there's a lot of other stuff involved in that, and um, you know, mental health issues, and um, and certainly his own demons. And look, you know, uh, if if you're putting out anti-Semitic statements, you know, I mean, if you're trashing any group of people, you know, whether you're you're dealing with mental health issues or not, that's just like absolutely unacceptable. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of other factors at play, but I, I do think that it that it sort of like shook him to his core in a way that continued reverberating, um, you know, long beyond that that 2009 VMA uh, moment. I get it. I get it. I think I think that his mother passing and then this VMAs happening, I think maybe it was yeah. like two years after or something like that. Those are probably the two yeah. biggest catalysts. Yeah, those are the two for big. like, yeah. oh shit, what's going to happen? And granted, we obviously know that pain makes art. And from things that I'm sure we both read and listened to, there is a direct corollary to the VMA incident and some of the inspiration that leads to my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. So yeah, it is this ironic thing where obviously he had success after that, plenty of commercial success, plenty of household hits, but wasn't necessarily the old Kanye ever, ever again. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think old Kanye died at the, at the VMAs, right? Yeah. And, you know, in a way, in a way, the, you know, I think that, that his best, I think Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy was his best album. And you could also argue that Yeezus was um, artistically, you know, more challenging and, uh, you know, like more of a statement um, than anything old Kanye put out either. But in terms of like just his success as a, you know, as a mainstream superstar, you know, old Kanye, I mean, man, we could go through the, through the catalog, but like that, that was, you know, 
that was stuff that everybody could, could get into just about everybody. So, um, you know, I think it definitely took him in a different direction for better or worse. Mine is a vague who lost the most, but artists that were either to be blunt, a not visually appealing in their appearance, their vibe or artists that just didn't play the game. I think there were a lot of artists who were quite talented in the nineties, but just didn't lean into the whole TRL thing. And it, if they didn't have that, then they either hoped that the musicologists had their back, right? I think about artists like, you know, Cheryl Crow, for instance, you know, she has the All I Want to Do song. She had a few hits in the 90s, but I don't think she ever really hit that like MTV era. And, you, and this was around the time when you kind of saw, you know, the country pop crossovers and stuff, but I don't think she was ever really willing to do that. So I feel like, you know, kind of got a bit lost in the mix. There's still a successful career, but whether it was that or obviously, you know, like black artists before Michael Jackson, hip hop artists before Yo MTV raps that just didn't get the same breakthroughs. But yeah, those are probably the ones that I would say lost uh, the most. And then maybe similarly, some of the artists today that have tried their antics that probably would have made them as big as Madonna if they did them in 1984, but they're trying to do it now and shock value just kind of falls flat in the age of Instagram, TikTok, and all of the content channels we have now. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's a good point about artists, you know, maybe like Billy Joel who didn't have the look or Bob Dylan who didn't care. Maybe I think, I think Billy Joel didn't really care either. And maybe Bob Dylan didn't have the look either. I don't know, but, uh, they didn't continue to have the sort of commercial success that like the Rolling Stones did, you know, Mick Jagger was happy to go on and do all this stuff. Um, and obviously Bob Dylan and, and Billy Joel still, you know, sell records and can tour and, and sell out an arena, but, um, but they're, they're nowhere as financially successful, successful as the Stones are uh, anymore. Right. And haven't been for you know decades. Right. Agreed. All right. Anything else at MTV before we close this out? I think, I think that's all I had. Yeah. That was that was a that was a really fun one, you know, to to go from uh, the Jackie Robinson of uh, music videos with MJ to uh, Lizzo sitting in my lap to like reality TV. I think we I think we covered it all. I, I I think we covered it all too. So I don't know about you, but I'm gonna log off and just go watch some ridiculousness for the rest of the day. Oh God, yeah. Let's go veg out on the couch for the rest of our lives. All right, all right. Thanks again, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Rate the podcast on Spotify. Rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.